Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? You're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, CoForma is looking for a senior software engineer. This is a remote position. Work & Co. is looking for several roles, a lead recruiter in Los Angeles, California, a resource management coordinator in Brooklyn, New York, and a senior designer in Atlanta, Georgia. American Express is looking for several roles, a design manager, a senior UX designer, a UX writer, a senior mobile product designer, and a product manager. Most of these roles are remote, but they are also looking for candidates in New York City and Phoenix, Arizona. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. And while you're there, click on the talent tab at the top of the page and check out our new initiative with State of Black Design for companies and job seekers, the 10th Collective. It's free to be a member and you'll get warm intros to companies that are looking to hire. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. First off, I just want to thank all of you who applied to the 10th Collective based on what we did for last week's show. Um, if you're a black designer and you're listening to this and you haven't joined the 10th Collective, go join the 10th Collective. Now, you might be wondering, what is the 10th Collective? It's a great resource, whether you're looking for work or not, because you'll get connected with companies that are interested in talking to you and you can decide whether to talk to them or not. Best of all, you can hide your profile from certain companies or just be anonymous altogether. This is a great new initiative that is coming with our partnership with State of Black Design. And the goal of this is to pair up black design professionals in the design and creative industries with companies that are dedicated to hiring them. So head over to the 10th collective.com to join, or you can check out the link in the show notes. Secondly, we have merch. We've always had merch, but I've never been great about actually like publicizing it. So if you've ever wanted like a revision path t-shirt or a hoodie or a sticker or a mug, we got you. Um, We also just added some popular designs that we had in our store from a few years back, such as our Where Are the Black Designers shirt and our I Don't Work for Free shirt. That one's always pretty popular. So make sure you check those out. You can find our merch store by going to revisionpath.com and click the merch link at the top of the page and you're all set. I'm going to add some more items to the store this month, probably. But, you know, also tell me what you want to see. Tell me what sort of items you might want to see and they might make it into the store. So check it out. Thanks. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. Hover has over 400 domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics like .com, .net, etc. But you can also get some really fun niche extensions like .design or something like that. Hover is the only domain provider that we use over here at Revision Path, and we trust them completely. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path, and you can get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Yao Adentor, a UX researcher at Bolt and the founder of Analog Teams and Research Bookmark. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Yara Dentor. I am a product researcher. I'm a founder. I basically build and help people build products that resonate with people with the way they use that product in their own lives and how it improves their quality of life. So 
that's what I do. How has 2022 been going for you so far? I know you told me before we started recording, you just came back from a from a couple of trips. Yeah, 2022 has been, it's a long year, but in a very short amount of time. It, this always happens to me where the, the year starts off and I'm like, you know, there's time. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of the year and it's another one of the years again. So far, it's been really fruitful. I have two baby daughters, and they're all both under two. So we're seeing that growth into this new year, as well as just this whole post-pandemic. you know, pandemic And I'm saying post because hopefully we over everything. Being able to see people in person again and, and, and the changes and the growth that, that have been happening in our lives. So overall, it's a very blessed year so far. Can't complain. Nice. And you also started a new job this year. You were UX researcher at Bolt. How's that been going so far? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I actually started Bolt on uh, Valentine's Day. So there's a love story there. (laughs) (laughs) There's something interesting that always happens. So when I go back out in the the market, I'm like, oh, I'm looking for a new new work. It seems like the first thing I apply to, no matter how many interviews I get and, and offers and when I get back, the first thing I apply to is always what gets back to me. And it was actually a conversation with one of my colleagues there now, Horian, and I had a first conversation with her. Her energy just seemed so so cool, calm, and positive. And I'm like, maybe I want to work with this person. So it's been really good there. It's been interesting because, you know, Bolt is is a startup and a unicorn and, and all of this, whatever title they associate with us. So we've been going through our ups and downs as well there. But overall, it's been really good. I, I really appreciate working with the team, which is really refreshing for me. Tell me more about the work that you're doing there. Yeah, so I'm a product researcher at Bolt. We build checkout technology. So one-click checkout, making sure people can fulfill their checkout experiences or buying stuff without any any pain points. What I do on my day-to-day is help our product teams, our project managers, even our developers understand and get direction on how to build for our users, right? So again, I mean, product, building product is an interesting thing. Usually companies will, will hire, and same thing with, with both, and that's no really no, no no dig at them. We'll hire researchers later on after they grow, after teams have been established, and so forth. And which then we we're playing a back end game. We're trying to catch up and get in front of the roadmap. So what I do oftentimes has to do with clearing and bringing light to some gray areas, some dark areas path that we haven't built in before when it comes to user understanding. How do how are users going to take to this? How have they taken to it before in the marketplace? Can we build something that satisfy, that truly satisfies their need? And do we understand how to do that? A lot of what I do is talking to users, establishing the right questions with the PM, setting objectives, and going to get answers that can actually help the company grow and build products that impact the market. What's a regular day look like for you? Oh, man, I wake up early. I try going to sleep early as well. But I wake up early, probably around 6, 6.30. My, my oldest daughter wakes up pretty early. Uh, so that gets me up. I'm off to, you know, giving them a bath, changing, and making sure that, you know, we, we have some good breakfast before they head to daycare. So the first part of my day is actually just with my family. Uh, I try not to look at my phone because I know by the time I wake up, there are messages and all types of stuff in my mind. So that's the first part of my day. From there, taking them to daycare, and then I'm heading to, to training. Usually, I can get a good training session in and work out or run before the day a lot of people wake up. And this is really my saving grace because it helps me kind of get through the day, even kill. So that's the first half of my day. The teams I work with are usually on the West Coast. So by noon, you know, everyone is getting up and working. I'm already probably working with some of my colleagues that are on the East Coast. and we is ramping on right now. You're talking to people. We're figuring out questions. Hey, we're running this research. Are we doing this? Hey, how many users are we talking to? Hey, what's the hang up on this? Right. Oh, can we find out something about this? So my whole day, really, essentially, the daytime is a web of communication. It's trying to relay information, understand what people need, understand what I need, 
and you know moving on like that so that's a nine to five right and i'm executing trying to deliver on stuff and in between that at lunchtime i may have a meeting for research bookmark or something or analog on my lunchtime and then it, we get to the afternoon where my day is really fast i gotta go pick up the kids get them back spend enough time and some good quality time with the family and get back to work <laughs> probably until midnight or one sometimes depending on the time of the year and then i'm off to some reading some praying and, and sleeping so that's usually what my days are like that's a full day yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you said earlier you go to bed earlier and then you turn around and say you're working till midnight come that's, on <laughs> that's early sometimes because you know it's, there is so much to do this is in my ideal in a dream world i would like to go to sleep at 9 30 or 10 i'm an old man like i just have <laughs> style i like to go to sleep very early so i'm, I'm working towards that but in most of the time Completely honest, we get to midnight. These are the busy times of the year. Mm-hmm. Not busy times of the year, I can probably make 10 30, 10 30, 11, right? When I'm not too crazy busy. Okay. All right. <laughs> when new work comes in, because you say you're doing kind of all this communication, like it sounds like you're active almost at every step of the project. Is that right? Yeah, I try to be. When new work comes in, it usually comes through probably project management, product management, and we are building a mature practice where we have, you know, intake forms and we try to get people to kind of get in line, but not in, in a bad way, just so we can organize ourselves. Mm-hmm. So when work comes in, we take it from there, look at a backlog and see what is the most important work, especially when we, you know, we've been reshuffling and looking at how we reorganize to really help the company. And from there, I take it into, all right, let's start breaking out what we really want to find out. And this is really from a research perspective, this is one of the most important parts of the project for me is what do we actually want to know? Because if you don't let me know that, we can go on a whole run, a couple months, weeks, and come back with the wrong data because we didn't get to explore our true objectives. So from that perspective, I'm on to the project. I'm very much hands-on throughout the process, all the way to deliver the recommendations and the findings of the research. What would you say is probably like the most challenging part about what you do, as well as like what's the most rewarding part? Ooh, the most challenging part is <laughs> as, as simple as this is just communication and understanding. So reaching across to you know to our cross-functional partners and go, hey, I may need this this information, or what do we know about this? And kind of especially in a remote world where we're not in the office. And you can't just get to the person. Now, it's Slack messages, it's emails, it's this and that. So there's a a lot that get lost in in translation. So that's probably the most difficult part. I wouldn't even say convincing people. It's just communication. We did a webinar. Richard Bookman did a webinar earlier this year where Mike from Clavio was telling us about hard power and soft power. And where, you know, researchers are in a position where we usually have soft power convincing people, allowing them to understand, therefore helping them come on our side. We have really no hard power at work. So I'm constantly trying to exercise that. And that's probably some of the most challenging part. And there's also also the rewarding part when you can get understanding or consensus from different types of people in a room, agreeing on a project, or even challenging the project to, to be better. So when we come to that reward question, what you know, a real rewarding part is sometimes you go and you hear something in an interview or conducting research with a user and it just it just blows your mind. You're like, whoa, we didn't even think about that perspective. That's rewarding. Another rewarding part is when research pushes into the streams of building technology and you can see the user in the minds of everyone sitting around and the user is top of mind, their satisfaction is at the top of mind and their quality of life, which is something, a KPI that no one really measures, which I measure a lot uh, when in anything I do is how does that end up improving the person's quality of life? It's interesting that you sort of mentioned that about research, because I know like a lot of startups probably They'll have, you know, product designers, UX designers, they'll have PMs, et cetera. But it seems like 
organizations have to reach a certain level of maturity before they really start implementing like research, at least in a UX researcher position. Like even as I look back through my interviews, because I was like, I know I've interviewed a UX researcher before and I felt like I had done it like sooner, like sometime this year or something. It was like 2020, the last time I interviewed a UX researcher. It was someone from Facebook, which is not to say that a company like Facebook is the only one that will have UX researchers, but I don't know. It seems like companies have to reach that certain level to really start taking research seriously as it relates to like product development or user features or things like that. Yeah. It's something that somehow that narrative is is so strange, right? Because if you think about it, wouldn't you want to make the best decision at the very beginning of all of this? So what happens is successful companies and products solve a massive problem. You don't need research to solve a really massive problem. You just kind of solve it. And that's true, right? It just, there's no bridge. I build a bridge. Great. But then you're trying to build many other bridges across other cities. Then you need to learn about that. This is where, for me, the narrative is so strange that research is the last thing that comes on after decisions have been made on a product, on a roadmap. And it's scary because at that point, you're in the back. You're working on features. You're not helping people with hard power, stakeholders that are important plain sees in their mind about decisions that they should make. We don't necessarily sit at a point where we change business perspectives. That's not the goal. The goal is just to lay out, right, what the user may expect from this product and everything that comes along with that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because we're seeing its ramification in the market right now with, you know, layoffs at different companies. and, And this is probably because there are a lot of stuff being worked on that may not the best or something of that sort. Would I hire your researchers at the same time you hire your first engineer, I guarantee your company is going to survive much longer. It may change direction a lot. You may not agree, but you have someone that's sitting there essentially representing the user truly in your company. So it's a narrative that that hopefully it will just auto change itself where researchers are coming at the front of that you know, as we move forward. Now, earlier you alluded to two other companies. These are companies you sort of mentioned, like on your lunch break, you might do some things with them, but you founded, you co-founded two companies, one called Analog Teams, which is a a technology service company, and another one called Research Bookmark, which has been dubbed the Google for UX researchers. I want to start off with Analog Teams. How did that come about? Yeah, Analog Teams is a it's a pretty crazy story, man. Well, but it starts like a, a lot of small companies will start. My good friend and co-founder, Tabo Olaidoshi, which is someone you probably need to talk to at some point as well, because he has an incredible story. We ran track together. We were part of the same track team at UNBC. So kept up over the years. I know he's in product. I'm in product. And we always talked about either the black struggle, and we're both African. He's Nigerian. I'm Togolese, and we both have this huge affinity to Africa and the future and all of that. So, we, you know, we discussed many different things. And, you know, he would come over. This is when I was at, I was at probably KPMG or even earlier than that. He would come over every once in a while. We'll work and we'll talk about what can we do for Africa and how can we build and look at all these, all these young people. Africa is super young. Just, you know, perspective. Most of the population is under like 18. And, it's crazy because it's also the biggest continent out there, and there's a lot that can be done. So we'll have these discussions, and we're, we're you know, what can we do? And we're both in, in product, and you know, we're like, okay, we, we're going to start a software development company. And we went on that route, you know, and he brought in our third co-founder, Maisha Luster, an amazing lady out of Dallas that also became one of my really, really good friends. Us three, we... <laughs> We started trying to see what we can do for the continent. We call we call ourselves bridge builders, building bridges from African-Americans in the United States to Africans in, in Africa through technology. And this took us into a lot of failures, a lot of wins, a lot of improvement of quality of life for our employees. Just to put things straight, we haven't made really a dollar in analog teams, even to this day, even being cash positive. Almost all of it goes towards paying people, payroll. And it's 
that journey itself and all our teams, it, it came about through just trying to, Maisha will say, cultivate and advance people and, and all of this stuff. And we found technology was a way to do it. So we tried our hand at software development and, and we tried and, and failed and did different things. And then we found our, our hand a little bit in helping other people hire engineers. And we became this sort of tech global sourcing company. And we source the best engineers for the for some of the greatest companies, sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground. But that's the kind of work we do now. And that came about through just a person, knowing a person, communing on some kind of goal. I, I mean, we have all these recordings of like four or five years ago of us just talking crazy about stuff. And, you know, here we are do, doing something about it. So that's how it came about. I mean, it, there's so many things going through my, through my mind as you're asking this question. Yeah. <laughs> so that's analog teams. Like that's like, in a way, like the quintessential, like American tech story, like two people in college get together with an idea, they build it with another friend, and then it becomes, you know, something major. I mean, it sounds like you all have great connections then to be able to staff, like, it sounds like internationally. We staff only in, in U.S. companies now, but we've, we have used, we have staff engineers from Africa into the West and, and back and forth. And it's, it's such a, an interesting business to be in because you rely a lot on on the ingenuity of people and their humanness to connect with other people to be able to even get them to talk to a recruiter or whatever. We sit on the back of a lot of companies. We're now just rolling out our own and being kind of the face of top, we, I think they call it top funnel sourcing. Mm-hmm. And here's interesting about that. This happened post-college. Table and I were in college 2014, 2014. And we started this in 2017. And my first tech job ever was actually being a sourcer at a company called Eliason, which is, I think they're called something else now. And I was a sourcer. And I remember just seeing all this Rex and all these people with no degrees making so much money. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? Is this tech? And I'm <laughs> like, wait, do we have to you know, do a traditional way of thinking? That was my first actually... That was my first ever knowledge of being in tech is just just seeing all these regs and all these positions that I didn't know anything about. And turns out, you know, years later, somehow, some way, we end up as a sourcing company, which I'm the prime sourcer somehow. And it changed so much from, you know, what I used to do in that internship, but it's still amazing to think about. No, that's great. I mean, especially to have that relationship you know, also with these companies that they would come to you, like you say, for that kind of top funnel sourcing. In a way, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the interesting thing for having done this show this long is I get to talk to people at so many different companies. And so a lot of companies will reach out to me, which is actually why we started our job board a couple of years ago, because so many companies will reach out to us and be like, we're trying to find black designers. We're trying to find black tech people. Where are they? You know where they are. I'm like, I, uh, okay. I'm just interviewing one a week, but sure, I can try to help out. I mean, that's great, though. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's really taking off. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's taking off. We're trying to break out of just being breaking even and actually offering more to the people that work for us. Across, we we are 100% African-American and Black firm, African firm mm-hmm. in the U.S. And it's such, uh, th- there are so many challenges that we have to, through to go through to work across borders, everything from paying people without paying a bunch of fees because somehow no one has built a true way of paying people in Africa or engineers, really smart people, and it's it's really hard. And we had to figure out things that no company had to figure out. Mm-hmm. And we're getting better, uh, and then we're, we're 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 hoping to kind of cross that that barrier where people start seeing the quality that we bring to to top level sourcing as well. Now, this other company, Research Bookmark, tell me about that. Did that grow out of the work you do through Analog Teams, or is that from somewhere else? Huh. So, okay, so Research Bookmark is, like many things that I do, an idea that hits me, usually at night or randomly, and I start working on it kind of right away. It's just how, how it goes. So this is how Research Bookmark came out. I, a couple years ago, I came across Notion. 
And I oh, I love was, Notion. I love oh, Notion. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, that's it. We, Notion, right? Notion changed the game somehow. You know, there are a lot of note-taking tools out there, but there was something about Notion. And at the time, I was um, also mentoring through a UXP, a UXP program. I think I'd done once or twice, and I was in like a third round or something. And my mentees, you know, people ask about sources, and I'm like, you know, I'm going to my bookmark, and I drop it down, and it's just random stuff. It's, it's a bunch of stuff. I'm sure they're important, but I can't I can't make it out again. So. Mm-hmm. I was notion came right at that time. And I just, I just thought, what if I can just drop all of this somewhere and I can share it with the world? Is this really possible? It blew my mind. Something very simple. I mean, you could have done the same thing with a, a, a worksheet or a Google sheet, but for some reason, notion was just, or just well-designed it is, and everything. And I really wanted to use it. So research bookmark was actually born right there and it seemed like a crazy idea i remember texting my friends like guys i'm gonna put the, you know people are like yeah that, that's cool it sounds useful like, yeah, <laughs> ever, it sounds useful you know that that's what i got at the time from there i, th- I think i tried many names before research bookmark like color research nuggets or something i was like yeah i love this naming stuff when, when you start building something whatever and we got to the point where the, the first person to work on research bookmark with me was actually one of the mentees, but she didn't really last long. I know she was looking for work and stuff, but analog team. So here's what happened. Very strange. Table, my co-founder, had lived in Kenya prior to that year. He lived in Kenya for like a year or something of this sort. And he met a lot of people. We were trying to like build software again, like I, like I was telling you. And when we came back, this was one of our first hires. We, we hired a girl out of a, out of a town called Nyeri in Kenya. And her name is Kavanish Mwangi. And she's actually the PM, the lead PM on Research Bookmark now. And the way I was to train her was through Research Bookmark. So she would do work for Analog. I don't know what we were doing at that time. She was trying, helping us with projects, whatever. And then I'll have her spend time on Research Bookmark. Okay, how do we categorize this? What do we do? And it was just back and forth. She's remote. I never met her. I actually just met her on this trip a couple of days ago, right? Crazy. So we, we're going back and forth building research bookmark. And this is our training ground. This is also me just saying, wow, this is maybe how you build a product. We get to the end of, I don't know, 2019. For a couple of months, we had like maybe 500 sources in there, organized in all weird ways. And I go, wow, maybe if we, you know, if we got a, if I get a 500 to 1,000 people to touch this page over a year, that would be amazing. Turn this thing on two weeks later, there's over 1,200 people. Go, okay. And at that time, we started talking to researchers. We're rushing, talking to researchers. What do you need? How can we make it better? Advisors and, you know, my, my people that I look up to and, and stuff. And we just, we're talking and trying to improve it and make it better. And it just, it took a life on its own. Is really what happened. But it all started from coming across Notion, coming across the right person, being in the analog, having analog deliver a person that can work on it at the same time. This really impossible combination of stuff is what helped you research bookmark. How has it been received by UX researchers? Have you gotten a lot of like great feedback from people? Yeah, yeah. It's been received well because essentially product research is going through this you know, maturity, right? Like every, a lot of PhDs in the social sciences are crossing over into industry. And this is the way to get in. It may not be where they stay, but this is the way to get in. And this is what's really interesting. It fits their degrees. People coming out of college, us that that were trained as product designers at the very beginning, my background is in psychology. I became a product designer first, but I always knew I was going to go into research or strategy or something of that sort. All of these people are now gearing towards research, product research. Companies are feeling the need a little too late, but they are feeling the need. You see programs at Google and Amazon starting to mint more and more UX researchers. So us being the Google of UX research just helps everyone discover information, sources, meet each other. The platform itself is great. But the community that we're building around the platform is really what's going to help us stand strong. And that community is through LinkedIn, 
the people we meet, the research we run on researchers, it's been very well received. We always been taking feedback. And our mission now is to make the day-to-day of researchers just more fruitful. If you wake up, you're looking for something, improve your craft, go on research bookmark, use our search, because that's what it's built for. We want it to become every researcher's homepage one day. That's such a great way to just give back to the community, too, with such a great resource like that. So, you know, we've talked a lot about your work. You've kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier about your background being uh, from Togo. So let's kind of jump into your origin story. Tell me about growing up in Togo. Yeah, man, I grew up in a small country and on the west coast of Africa called Togo, where Togolese people. So I'm, I'm both Togolese and American. My parents moved here when I was, I was pretty young, uh, I think nine or ten. And I grew up in how most African kids would grow up in big communities. My grandmothers are around, my uncles, everyone kind of lived. We lived in the same, I would say it was a neighborhood. And there's a beach town, right? I live I lived like maybe 10, 15 minutes away from the beach my whole life until I moved. I moved here. My first language is, is French. So we studied. I started school pretty early, I think at two and a half or something. I was selling diapers, my mom said. One thing that I really remember, you know, about being in Togo is the group of friends that I live with in our neighborhood that I played with, you know, every day. We would play soccer and stuff like that. The house across were Jessica and and Gail, and behind them were Seth, and there are this kid, Steven, behind me, and we... Now that I think about it, we were pretty nutty kids because <laughs> we up with all these games. We tried making up our own language at one point, and we lost that book. That that would probably be very useful right now. All of these things that really marked my childhood, right? And being raised in in a household where, well, in a household or neighborhood where everyone is raising you, you know, it's hard to do something wrong. And growing up in the African community, but. Togo was a, a blessing to live in. And I mean, I was young and I go back, I would go back home often to visit. And it's always a pleasure. You know, we're very peaceful people, you know, for the most part. And, and the, the weather is nice and life is pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, beside from the usual challenges of being an African country, you know, a lot of unemployment, a lot of, you know, what do we do after I graduate? A lot of lack of just operational organization around the country. That's just the, the challenges we deal with as Africans, but it's really good. It's really good growing up there. And you say uh, it's a beach town. Is this Lome? Yeah, Lome. Yeah, I grew up in a, a town called Bagida, Cité de Bagida, so which is the city of Bagida, which is just a, a neighborhood right on a right across the road from you cross the the big road, the highway, and you're walking right on the beach. Nice, nice. I work with the startup that I work at as a French startup. And so we have a lot of people from Benin, which I know is the the yes. neighboring country. And I think we have a I think we have one or two people from Ghana. But I, I know about Togo one because I don't want to say I speak French. I studied French. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I have to be put in an immersive situation to know whether or not I speak it. But like I studied it from second grade all the way through college. So like I can read it. I can recognize it. I think I'm okay with speaking it. But like if I speak to a native French speaker, I'll be like, uh, yeah, we, oui. oh, <laughs> but I did a, um, one of those, like I think it was 23andMe or Ancestry, one of those. I think my ancestry was traced back to Togo. I don't know where specifically in the country. I feel like I'd have to do like African ancestry or something to figure that out. But that's where I first had learned about Togo and know I knew about it being a French speaking country. So, and you say you moved here about, you were about nine or 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We moved to uh, Maryland. I remember Silver Spring. I went to an elementary school called Deers Mill Elementary School. I remember. Yeah. How was that shift? It was good. I mean, we were younger. I know it was tough for my parents. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We. I, I mean, I was younger. I was a kid. So, like, it's like, oh, my God, new things. Like, you know, <laughs> school, new things. And the language wasn't hard. I had a English tutor before I got here. That, that, that helped so much because American English is so different from what it is in person. Yeah. We're, we're a bit of British English and stuff like that. But, I mean, I would say all around smooth for, my, for me 
beside from like, you know, leaving your friends back home and they're all all over the world now, Switzerland and Europe and all of this stuff. So we're all over the place, but it was a pretty smooth transition for me, I'll say. I actually went to Morgan State first. I went to three colleges in three years. Wow. Um, so when I graduated high school, I had a full scholarship to compete in track and field. I threw shot and I still threw shot for Togo as a pro. But then uh, when I graduated, I went to Morgan State. For me, you know, at that age, it was I wanted to find the best coach. I wanted to connect with more because I wanted to throw as far as I can. And that didn't happen that first year. And I thought maybe I, I need a switch. Then I, I went to University of Maryland. In Maryland in 2012, they cut the teams. There were budget stuff and they cut the teams. They cut track, men track and field specifically among some other sports. So I ended up going again to a school that I looked at when I was graduating. I actually visited UMBC and met Coach Bob when I graduated high school. I came back and there was a coach there, Coach Panayotis Kumlelis. A, a Greek man. So he became my coach and I, I, you know, I finished at UMBC. So that's how my story went. I started at a, at a, a black university, a historical black university, which was a great experience to Maryland and then UMBC where I graduated. Wow. So how was your time there? How was your time? I mean, you were an athlete, but also you studied industrial psychology. Like how was your time there? Yeah, it was a great time. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the friendships, a lot of the connections. I live actually right behind UMBC now, where my my wife and I live now. So I stayed pretty close. It was a great time. I would say, I mean, college is a blur in a lot of ways because, I mean, as athletes, we don't have the same exact experience as everyone else. Our time is booked. So you know, try to, to do a lot of stuff. I remember I had a job in, you know, even with athletics. I used to do security overnight for a company called Securitas. I would drive all the way to DC to do security at the Geico building, go back and other weekends I'll do marshals of I was a whatever, whatever they call them, something marshals. Like we're like cops on campus mm-hmm. and did that kind of work. But most of the stuff that UMBC gave me is just being resourceful. It wasn't the easiest school to navigate. Most schools are, I mean, it it was pretty young university and the technology was okay. So if you wanted to get something done, you had to go to the source. Actually, my last couple of years, I was in SAC Student Athlete Advisory Committee. Okay, I got it right. And (laughs) I was the president of SAC my last year. Mm -hmm. You know, we try to do a lot of stuff for the athletes and all of that stuff. So that just got me around to Meeting people, trying to get stuff done. Is this how people really get stuff done in real life? I was asking myself because it's like, it's impossible. People, you know, they give you, everyone give you the, kind of the run around, even if they didn't want to. So mm-hmm. that person has it, this person has it. So my experience there was pretty, you know, for those were like really formative years. And studying industrial psych, I actually started studying industrial psych in high school because I was in a part of some AP program and you had to like choose something. I knew I wanted to do psychology. My father was like, I don't, I'm not sure about psych, man. I mean, you may become a secretary or something. This <laughs> 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 was a running joke in the house. And I was like, man, I don't know if I wanted to become a counselor, a psychiatrist specifically. But if I was going to become, I was going to be a cool one. But I wanted to, I also wanted to do some something around business. And what I found through Google search was this thing called industrial psychology. It was fascinating that you can apply psychology in, and without being a, psych, a counselor or something like this. So mm-hmm. I started, I got into this AP program, and you can study whatever you wanted. So I had an internship at Retheon Solipsis. It was some kind of government contractor, and I was in HR, and kind of learned like what a... She wasn't an industrial psychologist. I think my mentor wasn't, but... This is kind of the stuff they would do. So that took me to college where I wanted to study. And UMBC just happens to be one of the schools to have an industrial psych minor or certificate. Uh So along with behavioral cognitive psychology, I I did, you know, I did this uh, certificate in industrial psychology. So it all kind of worked out then. That's good. Yeah, (laughs) all kind of worked out. Once you graduated, like, what did your early career look like? Did you find a lot of 
like UX research positions out there? I mean, I'm, I'm asking, you know, sort of alluding to what you said before about companies are just now kind of starting to come around to UX research. I'm guessing you probably graduated like in the like mid to late 2010s. So I'm guessing like, I don't know, were companies looking for UX researchers back then? Oh, no. First, I wouldn't have known to look. Mm. Interesting point there is when we were in when we were in high school, they would always tell us. I went to Reservoir High School in Fulton, Maryland, and <laughs> there's two strange things about that schools. One, they would bring this guy in to talk to us how we were the best schools in the country. It was weird. It was like a rally thing, and like we actually believed it for a long time. <laughs> then, <laughs> then the other thing was they would tell us that the jobs that we were going to have are not yet created. And it's really hard mm. for a high school student to comprehend that. It, it affects me now in a lot of ways where I think about, you know, what are my daughters going to do? What, what I would have been doing 10 years. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's not there yet, right? And UX research definitely wasn't there when I graduated high school and definitely not there when I graduated college. I was looking for industrial psychology jobs, which were impossible to find as well. Mm. No one was hiring this industrial psychology to make the workplace better. Haha. <laughs> no one was doing that then, but I bet now they're, <laughs> they're, just, <laughs> they're in very different forms. But mm-hmm. no, I was looking at, you know, and I, I connected with HR. So I look at a lot of HR jobs and, and stuff like that. But no, nothing about, I knew, I knew nothing about user experience, which is a whole other story, how I got into that or user experience research for that matter. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, Just that part you mentioned about like the person coming to your school and saying that the jobs that you'll have, like they don't exist yet. That flashes me back to high school. So I I went to high school in the 90s and Mm -hmm. I was in high school right when the Internet like started to take off, like right when it's sort of the advent of the advent of the World Wide Web. I I should say that started to take off. So like mid to like earliest 90s so we had like a computer lab we had computers in the school and stuff and i was like learning html and teaching myself html and and like not even knowing what i would do with it mm-hmm. because it was like a skill that you learned and granted i was you know studying i was i don't know what i was on track to be in high school i was just studying st- actually that's not true i was on track to be a musician in high school and i was doing a lot of math and stuff on the side because i was i was just good at it but not really thinking like, oh, what am I going to go to college for? I initially wanted to go to college to major in English and be a writer because I was also writing. And my mom is like, no, you're not going to make any money doing that. You need to like focus on something that's going to make money. Like, what about them computers? You always at school with your face in them computers. Why don't you study that? You know, but like back then, like this is like 1999. This is also the year where we thought Y2K was going to wipe out everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the whole thing of like, I'm going to major into computers if, if you know, Armageddon doesn't happen. And it's like, I would be sitting in my computer programming classes in the fall of 99. Like, why am I even studying this? Like, what if Y2K comes and all of this is just like obsolete? Like, we really didn't know. But to that point of like, you're studying for something or, or you're you, the job that you end up doing is something that does not exist yet, which is so yeah. wild to think about when you see just the yeah. path of how technology grows like it's it's crazy like i had no idea when i was in college that i would end up doing like web design as like a profession because it was always a hobby back then and i didn't know anyone who did it like this was 1999 2000 i was reverse engineering web pages in notepad and just trying to like figure it out Uh, because i didn't see anyone that did this there were no schools that taught it i didn't know anyone that like if I knew people that did the web, they were like a webmaster. So it was always like this weird, even back then, like the terminology is not what it is now. You know, like there's yeah. all kinds of different stuff. But yeah, man, whoa, that took me back. Just saying that part. That's, a, that's another thing right there, right? Just the terminology of how things change. I mean, we're sitting here having this conversation and the jobs are will be in the future. We can't even fathom what, what that's going to be like. Who is going to be and who's going to be doing it? How is it going to come about? It's an yeah. incredible thing to think about, really. Look, I've seen job titles change since I started this show. <laughs> I remember when I first started the show, I was not talking to UX designers. I was not. Yeah. I think that maybe started about, I don't know, maybe about four or five years in. 
started getting a bunch of UX re- re- like UX researchers, UX designers on the show. I'm like, what is this UX? Is that like graphic design? Like, what is that? Like, just trying to like figure it out because actually, I think back then they just called it like UI UX designer. So yeah, it was like you did both things. Yeah, uh, information architect, and mm-hmm. even, I mean, even in this show, I just use product researcher multiple times, but that just means UX researcher. But UX designers are not calling themselves product designers, so I'm like, well, I'm a product researcher then, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it's changes so fast, right? So like going back and looking at at your career, you were at KPMG for two years, then you were at Softrums for two years after that. When you look back, like during that time, like what do you take away from that? Oh man, KPMG was a fantastic experience. I actually. The way I got to KPMG was I was in the, I was in the MICA MPS program, Masters of Professional Studies in UX Design. Check this out. So I moved to Germany after graduating. We didn't talk about that to okay. go study to go study sports management because I believe in sports so much. I did, but it didn't work out. So I went there to train. I trained with my coach a lot. I lived in Mannheim, and before I left, the, the, there was this whole thing. Usually, I, before I left, I've met the word UX research, design. That, that's how I found the word UX design on Google through a mm-hmm. conversation. And I planted a seed. So I came back, started looking for schools, Arizona. I'm like, maybe I have to move to the West Coast. I didn't know what really I wanted to do. I felt kind of down. Around those times, I was reading a lot of Rumi poetry to kind of get myself back up. (laughs) (laughs) How I was, man. I was like depressed. I was like reading a lot of like Sufi poetry and stuff. Uh And and through that whole thing, I found this program that was starting at Micah. And I applied. I was like, I don't know what the ad was or whatever. I applied. And I went to meet this lady called Crystal Shambly. And she's just one of the great pushers in my life altogether. But I went to meet her to talk about that. I, I didn't want to do something theoretical. I see this ad. I see you guys are doing UX design. I want to do it, but I don't want to do anything theoretical. I don't want to write any papers. I don't have any time for that. And at the time, I was I was a, a substitute teacher in high school. I was actually I was I wasn't being a sub anymore. I was teaching special ed, helping teachers teach kids with behavior stuff. And I was the first student to apply to that program and the first student to be admitted. Very weird story. I only learned this like about a year ago. And there was 10 of us and only five of us or six of us graduated the program. So through that program, towards the end, a letter came through, an email came through, and Crystal forwarded to us about people they're looking for people in UX design at KPMG. Oh, well, I, I, I know KPMG. I didn't know KPMG then. But you, you look them up and you see they're part of the big four. Hey, you're going to school. This may be a great thing. I sent back my stuff. I don't know if anybody did. I got an interview. I went there and met two gentlemen, Mike and Mark. And they interviewed me. And then I got an internship. It was an internship into a job kind of thing. So I got to KPMG through that way, right? Through basically this, they were looking for people. They had a relationship with Micah somehow. And I got to start working there. First thing I noticed is that this whole UX design thing is not very straightforward. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people, a lot of ideas in limbo, just say, okay, what do we do here? Or what is that for? What is design? How do you come up with product ideas? And how do you iterate and stuff like that? Because I was moving into product design. Mm-hmm. I learned as much as I could, traveled a bunch. Uh, they gave me opportunity to like just be on different projects with a bunch of Fortune 100 companies. So I've I seen a lot. I wouldn't say I got any craft skills, but I got two things. I got the idea of what good design is and what good design is not. And also about what cultures I wanted to be in and the cultures and the people that I wanted to work with. One of the greatest gifts I got from KPMG is one of my mentors, John Winnewicki who taught me actually how to design product and how to look at designing and how to when to break the rules or how to break the rules and where there's no rules, what you do and so forth. That was my biggest takeaway from that company. I, I met a lot of people, did some pretty cool things, but having just someone on my first ever project just being like, I like that kid. I'm going to help him out was 
life changing. Among the learning, you know, be, being in the corporate and and all of this stuff was was also cool. I'm sure it influenced the way the way I, I look at you know business and stuff now. But that was the biggest thing I learned there. And from that experience, I went to the other extreme to work in government. I worked at CMS through Softrams during COVID. I got to Softrams. We were on a CMS contract, and then COVID happened. I mean, mm. it was just it was madness, right? It was wow, now things are really, you know, let's improve the systems and and stuff like that. And being at Softrams taught me another thing, working through a contractor in a federal space, which I honestly wouldn't want to do again, not because it was a bad experience, but I think the system in which they work with other people probably needs to be improved in a lot of ways. But I work with some pretty fantastic people on some impossible, impossible problems. Because if you know anything about government UX, building government products is not as straightforward. It's not private industry. You don't just go get things done. There are processes. There are people in a way. There are steps to everything. And being able to improve all of that and the the platform that you're actually supposed to build was a, a positive challenge. It really gave me some some strength in kind of being in a, in a senior lead part of, of my career. So I took a bunch of things from those two experiences, both functionally, all over, growth, cultures you wanted to work in, people you wanted to work with, and, and so forth. So it was, it was really amazing. And now you're running two businesses, you're working full time, and on top of that, you're also a professor at MICA, where you got your master's degree, you just alluded yeah. to that earlier. Talk, talk to me about what you're teaching. So for the last few years, I was teaching prototyping. And that was really a passion of mine because prototyping is kind of like movie making. And I, I used to make all this like hack movies from training over the summers when I was in college and, and mixtapes and stuff like that. So prototyping is a, for me is a lot like making a movie and, and making it correctly. So for a few years, I did that. Now I teach. Now I'm teaching UX research which is closer to home and because the need is there and there's also the perfect time. The world needs more U.S. researchers and I want to be there kind of helping people cross over, right? building that bridge again and help people cross over into that field. I mean, you mentioned a lot of stuff. Most importantly, I'm a husband and I'm a father and that mm-hmm. that, is, that takes most amount of my energy and that's rightfully so. And whatever I have left, and I, I don't want to. I don't want the the company I work for or the business I do to feel less than. But whatever I have left is what I dedicate to that, and I do it dutifully, and I, I try to do as perfectly as I can. Yeah. So all of those things are they're essentially part of how I think and how I part of how I work. I'm always and all these businesses and stuff, and I mean building a business and stuff like that. I kind of also shy away from like the world entrepreneur and all of that stuff is kind of weird. Like first I haven't made that much money or any money. So what money do you call me an entrepreneur? But the second part is it also falls into like everyone thinks you're hustling, but that's really not it. It's part of my personality to create. And I, I'm a compulsive creator. And I say that I'm addicted to creation. I'm a compulsive creator. I'm always trying to make something. I think I built like four or five products last year. Some are dormant, some are not there. But <laughs> I'm always trying to do this. And some of them have stuck, right? Analog teams and research bookmark and, and, and so forth. And some of them have not. So I see that as part of myself. And that's why I actually don't use, you know, the work-life balance. I use work-life harmony because we take so much of our of our energy, of our life to working that is almost as a spiritual journey as well. To building these things, meeting these people, being into it, Failing, getting back up, it's a big journey. So all of that for me rolls up into me, essentially, in a lot of ways, you know? How do you achieve that harmony? I mean, that's, like you say, you kind of have all this energy and then you also expend it at work too. Like, teach us, how do you do this? How do you you balance it all and get that (laughs) harmony? I don't. Honestly, I I don't know if there's a, I I can, I don't know if there's a purposeful way to, to say, hey, I do this, I do that. I know that I do 
which a lot of people shy away from, I do pray or meditate a lot on what I need to do next and get answers from there, which is kind of vague to say because it's not operational. I, I'm not going to give you a five-second rule book or whatever. Is I'm always trying to achieve this, the right thing to do kind of stuff. And I think that helps my steps forward. It helps me achieve a lot of what, you know, all of those things put together in a time that you need to do them. Plus, let's not discount it. Let's actually put forward all the people in my environment that helped me do this. My wife, my kids, my co-founders and everywhere. I've never built anything by myself on my own, just on my own. I may have gotten an idea on my own and kickstarted it, but never on my own. These are the people that are actually making this work-life harmony work. You know, let's be honest, I actually haven't thought about that before too much, but they're the people actually holding the whole thing up. Because, you know, if some of that goes away, you can't get anything done. You know, from my coworkers at work to people helping you build companies and update stuff, it's both that. It's, it's both praying and meditating on what I need to do next and what is the right thing to do, but also holding up the people that are in combination, holding everything up around me. I would say that's that that's the best answer that comes to me right now, actually. No, I think that's, you know, that it's funny you said, like, it's not an operational thing. It's really just sort of taking time and stopping and meditating and praying. I mean, I think if it's one thing I've learned throughout the years is that the work will always be there. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't do you any I don't want to say it doesn't do you any better, but it certainly does a disservice to the work if you rush to try to get things done. Like there's that whole saying about haste makes waste. Like, yes, the work will always be there. So if you can just take time out, work smarter, not harder, all those sorts of things. I'm glad that you said that it's not like some life hack or whatever that like you know one, you know like one it takes a a team, it takes a family, it takes a village to kind of help you out, but also just stopping and like taking stock to kind of think about what your next move should be. That's really important. I, I read all those books, man. I, you know, how to make friends and win people over. And my late, late teens, I've just like, I, I'm a big audible fan and I've read so many self-help books without knowing it, it wasn't conscious at the time. It was just what my brain wanted to eat. And then now I don't do that so much anymore because I know even taking that in is different. The way you apply those stuffs are very different. And, you know, out of all this, I think you mentioned this a bit. I get tired. I mean, you just, you get tired. So I need to rest. I need to sleep. <laughs> and I need not to think about work or anything, anything of that sort. So, and that kind of gives you more life into coming back and doing more, you know? What do you think you would have done if you didn't get into this field? Oh, man, that's a wild question. Well, I think I mentioned before I wanted to do uh, sports management. Mm -hmm. I really I really think or I really I was really into the idea that I should have haven't visited the idea in a while that sports can help change the world. And it does in a lot of ways when you see these big events and stuff. So maybe I've gone into sports management deeper. I always thought that if I didn't do industrial psychology, I could have been a a counselor or a psychologist or something with like a PlayStation in my room. So I would do teens and we'll have fun instead of like putting a lot of pressure on them. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that stuff. But I really couldn't tell you for sure because our life is the, the perspective on life is so it's such is is this tonal thing. Like I'm looking at it now and I'm like, maybe I could have done this or that or that. But it just it takes one moment, one conversation just like how I got into UX design or research mm -hmm. to change everything. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could have been many. I, don't, I was always interested in people and talking in psychology and talking to people and, and spiritual things and so forth. So I may I may have done something along those lines, whatever that, you know, that is. Would you have still possibly like competed? I mean, you yeah. did it in, in college and I know you mentioned that you uh, you say you do it for the nation of Togo as well. So you're like a, a record holder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my nation's record holder. Who, who knew? Who thought that that's even possible? Yeah, but I... In two events. Yeah, in, in two events. One, one <laughs> of them, some, some young kids should definitely come and break that like that. <laughs> so please, some young kid, come break the, the, this, you know, this record. Um, 
I got into college and, and stuff, doing track, you know, and paid for a little bit of school. And then I think when I was a junior, I found out that I can make or sophomore, I found out that I can make my national team. I emailed the head of the national committee, General Nabede, and I hope that man is still there. I need to call him. He's, he, you know, he, he, he responded, you know, with so, in, in, with so much energy you know, that I was like, whoa, maybe this is possible. I can compete for my country. And then the next year I was, I was on a plane to Morocco competing for the first time at the African championships. And I set the record then. And then, you know, the, the, the years coming after I, I did it again, I need to do it again soon. I'm, I'm, I'm training hard again. So <laughs> I, I still compete as a pro somewhat. So yeah, so that, you know, that that's also there, you know, as part of, I guess, my story and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Would you ever do an Olympics? Yeah, I, I kept trying, man. My wife is actually like a two-time Olympian, so... Wait, 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 wait. You, you, really? Yeah. <laughs> in, in what sports? In discus. She throws discus for... She's actually... Uh, she, was, she was born here. Uh, she's a dual citizen, so she throws discus for Nigeria. Wow. Uh, she made 2012. I don't know if they got to go, but she went to Rio and had a, a great meet there as well, so... She's a better athlete than than I'll ever be, and uh, I keep trying to make it. So I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try Paris. I feel good. I feel really healthy right now. So and and I'll see if I make it. But the, the standards are pretty far. It, it takes one of those one of those moments for you to do it. So I'm looking for that as well at some point. <laughs> so your family is like like the Fantastic Four. <laughs> You know what? If my two kids, my two, they're they're pretty strong, man. They're 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 pretty active, so they may grow up to do track and field as well. There's no money in track. I'd rather them play tennis, like Serena Williams or something. But if they, you know, they grow up to want to play sports, we're ready. We we have a lot of knowledge. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what what kind of work do you want to be doing? What sort of impact do you want to be making? Oh man. I think in in the next five years, maybe I'll still be at both. At one time, we I know we were talking to my I have a, a really great manager and Andrew, uh, and he was like he was like we were talking about something. He was like ten years. He just at least stay here for ten years. I'm like yeah, man, why why not? It's <laughs> so it, it. I've never felt like so. Here's something I've I never felt like I I work I work for people. Like I never felt like as a the, the unbalance of relationship when I work for a company. I know a lot of like entrepreneurs or people that like to create feel that that heat and they want to just be really into their their thing. I'm a contributor in, in a lot of ways, so maybe I'll still be at both if the company keeps going and they can do great things. Especially for me, if the team is still awesome, I'll be there. Research bookmark would I taken over the world? Would I had you know millions of users? Would be on every researchers and designers homepage at work, maybe even get a, a bunch of fun funding to build search all over the world and, and, and such. And my family and this whole support system would have been, you know, they would have gone through a stratosphere, you know, being great people themselves as well. Like me, myself, I, I if, if I give you like a straight answer of where I really want to be, I, I can't tell you, I'm, I'll be guided by, you know, whatever guides me, you know, usually, you know, there'll be God and, and just, you know, the great energy in, in, in this whole universe. But I'll be doing something worthwhile is, is really what I'm hoping for. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? LinkedIn is probably the easiest way people connect these days when it comes to business and such. So Research Bookmark is on there if you are an aspiring UX researcher UX designer, project manager, and so forth, and you guys are getting into research and users, use Research Bookmark. Learn. Come into the, the best place to just draw. And our, our new update is incredible. We've gone from taking sources, almost like taking buckets and kind of pulling it into this pool, and now we build our own search. And you can search anything UX research on the web in the world. So Come use it. And a lot of teams, if you are a, a business out there, you are, you know, one of these unicorn tech companies, a big company, you need tech development talent from the U.S., from Europe, from Africa. We can find those people. We can qualify them and we can save you so much time and money 
in finding great people to help you scale as well. So I'm on LinkedIn mostly. I don't have any social medias. I do turn on my, my Twitter every once in a while, but I turn it back off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have, you can find me pretty open. I respond to everyone on LinkedIn and so forth. My team is there. Yeah, that's a place you can find me. And I mean, obviously through your podcast as well. All right. Sounds good. Well, Yao Edentor, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think your whole story is just super inspirational. I mean, not just with the journey that you've taken from, you know, being an athlete and learning about industrial psychology and, you know, UX research, but also with how you're giving back through your projects that you're doing. I mean, I feel like you're such a great example out there of what people can do if they really sort of put their mind to it when it comes to building and creating things in tech. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where you go in the future, man. I really am. Absolutely. As yeah. I learned today, we're distant, distant relatives because you're from Togo. I'm from Togo. <laughs> all these things. So it's, it was really a pleasure talking to you and meeting you as well. That's what's up, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right, man. Blessing and good things in the future as well. Big, big thanks to Yao Adentor, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Yao and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you. We're on social media, so please don't be a stranger if you ever want to reach out to us. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for revision path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.